So uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 23, um, again, just by way of explanation, uh, quickly, <coughs> you have the older generation that left out of the captivity of Egypt. They've wandered through the wilderness uh, because they doubted God when they had come to the border of Canaan previously. That generation has all passed away, and now you have the old or, or the younger generation uh, that uh, you know heard about uh, the things that the older generation experienced. Some of them uh, were young, but they did experience certain things that Israel experienced as far as God's provision and protecting protection in the wilderness. Now that younger generation has come to the border of Canaan and they're preparing to cross into the land. So Moses begins this process of instructing them in the law so that they have that firsthand understanding of what the Lord is communicating to them as to how they uh, should live. So it's a recounting of the law. And we've been through a number of different uh, legal explanations that the Lord is giving them. And we come to uh, verse 16, uh, where he addresses uh, prostitution in Israel. Verse 17 of Deuteronomy 23, there shall be no ritual harlot. Um, there's some other uh, definition involved, but it simply means a female prostitute. So you, you should have no female prostitutes of the daughters of Israel or a perverted one of the sons of Israel. So that would be the male prostitutes, uh, which were even more uncommon in Israel uh, at this time. Uh, female prostitution came and went uh, as the people worshipped the Lord uh, spiritually uh, they would purify themselves and get right with the Lord and right with their neighbors and their conduct, and this would disappear from the communities. And as they fell away from the Lord and fell into sin, and these things would reappear in their communities. Incredibly rare that male prostitution would appear in their communities. When we see the real corruption of Israel late, in uh, their history, you know, 580, 5, uh, you know, 590, 586 BC, as they're winding down to their being conquered and carried away into captivity, it was much more prominent in uh, their communities. So, uh, you know, here you're not going to have a perverted one of the sons of Israel. You shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog again price of a dog is in reference to the male prostitutes to the house of the Lord your God for any vowed offering for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God uh, abomination again need to get that um, uh, picture in your mind that it is something so vile that upon seeing it it would cause forgive me, projectile vomiting, that, that the reaction would be convulsive in, in, in simply seeing it. You know, we read the word abomination and it sounds sort of, you know, Shakespearean poetic, you know, some great abomination is, you know, it, it literally invokes the idea of becoming physically ill. 
And, and so this is how the Lord reacts to it. We sort of turned a blind eye. You know, uh, you know what we call pornography that's so you know, prevalent in our society today is prostitution. Men and women are selling their bodies you know, in order to, to see those things brought into our culture. You know, we, we are desensitized to it. You know, and if you're thinking, you know, some horrific level, of, I'm talking about what's in the magazine rack as you're trying to check out with your groceries. You know, what, what has become so commonplace, we don't even refer to it as pornography. You know, the, the covers of a lot of the fashion magazines are pornographic in nature by a biblical standard. Uh, so, so, you know, let your heart become sensitive uh, to what the Lord considers an abomination, you know, in your own life, your own, uh, you know, function. So uh, don't bring the wages into the church. And, and again, we all kind of go, well, of, of course, you know, that, that would be unacceptable. But it's accepted today. There, there are those who have indirect and direct connections with people in the industry, and they're allowing that money to flow into their churches and in their ministries, as sick and as twisted as that is. Um, along with that, you go back, you know, 100 years to three, 400 years ago, the commentator Trapp wrote, in 1659, that brothel houses were licensed by the Pope and that huge sums of money were paid into the Vatican in order to allow them to exist. That was, that was a known uh, thing of the day and well documented in the communities, literally having registries that, uh, you know, is this, this a brothel house that, that is licensed by the Pope or not licensed by the Pope? If it wasn't, then it had the potential to be shut down. If it was, then it was sort of off limits. Uh, that's a really sick and twisted thing, that that has to be part of what we would say is church history. Uh, you know, you look at the corruption of Israel, and it gets so bad, as I said, that you have male prostitutes in the community, well, make no mistake that throughout church history, things have gotten so bad that we have to record occasions such as that and occurrences such as that. Uh, 2319, you shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. So when it comes to lending money, the nation of Israel is told you're allowed to do that but it can't be that amongst believers you're charging interest. You know, if a fellow Christian comes and needs to borrow a hundred bucks, you can't be the loan shark, is is what the Lord is saying here. You know, you you want to lend to them. I you know, I've adopted the practice that if I've got it, I'd rather give it to someone. You know, I usually don't have it. That's why it's easy for me to say that. But you know, if if you know the idea of you know, it interfering with the relationship, the relationship's so much more significant. You know, why, why would we ever put that type of barrier uh, between us is, is what the Lord is saying, especially when it comes to that which is essential, food. You know, somebody comes to you and says, I don't have enough money to feed my family. Can I borrow 
50 bucks, 100 bucks, you're going to say, well, yeah, but you're going to owe me 120 by Friday. He's already not got enough for food. How can you put a greater burden upon him? You know, the Lord, it's unfortunate that he has to instill within the law the, the concept of what's right and wrong in caring and loving uh, for people. But, you know, he knows human nature, and he has to guard against it. Now, in 20, he says to a foreigner, you may charge interest. Uh, by implication, it's for non-essential. Okay, so if somebody comes and says, I'd like to buy a car, you need a thousand, can you, you loan me X number of dollars? And then, you know, if they're a non-believer, then the Lord is saying it's okay to charge them interest, that the Lord, your God, may bless you uh, in all to which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. The idea of don't take advantage of people so that the Lord is free to bless you. If you're taking advantage of people, you know, it's it's more than anything, you're moving the hand of God away from yourself, right? It's not even so much uh, the concept that the Lord is like putting the attack upon you as it is that he's protecting you and preserving you. He's, he's got a, a shield of protection over you. And if you're moving into the area where you're taking advantage of people, then essentially you're moving out from under his protection. You know that, That's sort of a concept you may want to consider on a lot of levels within your faith. God is not so prone to unleashing. He does, but he's not so prone to unleashing the problems upon us as much as it is he's clearly defined where the blessing and the protection is. And if you're going to wander outside the fence, then you're going to have to deal with whatever is out there waiting for you. It's something to consider as far as you know the character of God and the greater perspective here. <clears throat> so he wants to bless them when they go into the land. And in verse 21, you make a vow. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you. And it will be a sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be a sin to you. God doesn't demand that you make vows to him. But if you've made a vow to him, then you need to pay him what it is that you've promised. That which is gone from your lips, you shall keep and perform. For you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. I have a very personal uh, relationship with that uh, section of Scripture and uh, a very personal experience. My conversion is wrapped up in that. You know, the idea that uh, you know, many of us have found ourselves in trouble and uh, you know, made vows to God that if you'll get me out of this, <laughs> you know, I'll never do it again sort of attitude. Well, I was on a dead run away from God with my whole life. And uh, I wouldn't say I had rejected him or didn't believe in him, but I had put myself around so many other people and belief systems that I, I didn't know what I believed anymore. I was very, very confused. And uh, I had an encounter 
which would take far too long to explain, but I had an encounter with the Lord where I suddenly knew that he was completely real, that Jesus Christ was God and that he was the God of the Bible. And uh, I was in a really big problem. And I called out to God and said, I now understand that you are Jesus Christ and you're God. And if you'll get me out of this, I will give you my life. And instantly he got me out of the problem. Right, right there, right then, all done. Miraculously. And the next morning, I had to face the music. I had made vows to God that I would give him my life. And uh, I processed through that morning very seriously what I was about to do with my whole life. And that was the beginning of the end. I, I, I turned everything around. I stopped running from the Lord. I faced the music on all things and uh, just started walking with him that day. And that was 30, almost 33 years ago. Now, now, uh, you know, I'd like to say that my you know, life was like that poem we all see, you know, about footprints in the sand, you know, when there was only one set of footprints, that was when the Lord carried me. Mine is, you know, if you review the poem of my life, I would have to ask, like, you know, why is my face print in the sand right there? And why, why does it look like your knee was on the back of my head? You know, I just... There, there's been a lot of struggles, a lot of fights. I, you know, I've been drugged along a lot of the way uh, by the Lord. I, I don't mean to make it sound like I was, you know, an exemplary, you know, obedient person. I had big struggles uh, in in the thirty some odd years. But I can say that the commitment I made, I, I truly understood what I was committing and turned my life over to the Lord, and I've lived by that commitment. And, uh, and so that's why I'm standing here uh, today doing what I'm doing because of uh, those commitments made back then. So a couple of verses that support this. Uh, to begin with, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 33, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. So this isn't him saying, don't make vows, follow what he says, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Make commitments, weigh them out first, don't be rash. Think about what you're saying. And then when you've made a commitment, live by it. Stand by the commitment that you've made. I want to give you a couple of verses to support even further. Luke chapter 9, verse 62. Jesus speaking said to them, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is unfit for the kingdom of God. Literally leaving the plow is the idea. Going back, leaving back. You know, some of us sort of glance over our shoulder, and if you're plowing the way they did with an ox and having the plow behind, if you're looking behind yourself, your rows are going to be crooked. Okay, so as a Christian, there's a sort of metaphor there. 
keep your eyes fixed on where you're going rather than on what lies behind. But leaving the plow is, you know, something that the Lord is saying that there's actually punishment for. You're not fit for the kingdom if you're going to do that. Lastly, and I would say if those seem too burdensome, take this to heart. Hear what the Lord is saying. Psalm 15 begins at verse 1 by saying, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? And there's a list of things that are given that are worth your time. But for this discussion, verse 4, he says, He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. You're going to make vows, you're going to make commitments, and then it's going to stink. <laughs> it's not easy to keep your vow. It's not easy to follow through. There's great difficulty within it. I don't know how many people I have witnessed in ministry say, sign me up, never mind, and they walk away. It's going to hurt. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be challenges. And if you're going to volunteer to the kingdom that way, you need to weigh that out in the beginning, right? Because he, he says, if you're not inclined to follow through, don't make the vow. Right? There's, there's nothing wrong with understanding what your own capabilities are. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're going to commit, then you've got to follow through. You've got to be a person that's willing to go through the hurt even. right? Who can dwell in my presence? The one who vows to his own hurt. You know, you made the vow and you're just a little ways into it and you're realizing, I did not know it was going to cost me this much. And the Lord is saying, you made the vow. Follow through. I can tell you this, if you will, the Lord will bless you in the process. Far beyond what you can imagine, the Lord will bless you in the process. So back to Deuteronomy chapter 23, picking up at verse 24. When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container, when you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. If you're passing through the field, you can eat of the field, but don't harvest bundles for yourself and load them on your wagon and take them home. That's theft, right? The simple process of equity and what belongs to others. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, this is actually transpiring with Jesus. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain to eat. And when the Pharisees saw, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. I, uh, I get a strange picture each time I read that. I just... I just, uh, are, are, are these Pharisees like hiding in the grain field, you know, and as soon as Jesus and the boys are plucking grain, they pop up and, oh, we caught you. It's just, it's a really strange picture. Uh, maybe they were following with them, part of the crowd that was listening to, uh, you know, others learning, they were criticizing, but they're present in the situation. Jesus is not violating the law. In this, I often wonder in reading Deuteronomy, if Jesus Christ didn't include this in the law with the purposed intentions of confronting the Pharisees when the day came, 
right? Knowing that all throughout history, there's not going to be a lot of grain or grapes consumed by people just passing through the vineyards. So take care of the people and make sure they're fed and also set this day up right here where you can tell, right, what, what the discussion became in that moment was the Sabbath has been given to you so that you can rest. It has not been given to you as a burden. It's not something that you have to carry like some heavy load. It's something that you get to benefit from, resting in your relationship with the Lord. So there's a great fruitfulness in uh, that discussion that Jesus uh, has uh, in the Old and New Testament. Now in, in uh, 24, I'm going to just cover uh, these first four verses where it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and then it happens that he finds no favor in, uh, excuse me, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce to, of divorce puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination, there's that word again, before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So a few things to examine. The first of which is, you know, if you've been in the faith for any amount of time, you know how much God hates divorce. He does not want this to occur. Um, he says, Old Testament, New Testament, that the two become one flesh. Now, the way that that is written is, is difficult to understand and illustrate. Uh, one of the best illustrations I've ever heard is that uh, if you are, you know, the yellow Play-Doh and your spouse is the blue Play-Doh and you guys get married, you know, that first day, you smush those two things together. Okay, nice and hard. Just smush them all together. Now hand them to somebody and say, please take the blue and the yellow apart. Okay, it's going to be, well, it's going to be impossible, right? If you put a team of people on it with microscopes and scalpels and, you know, toothpicks, maybe, I don't know. You know, it's just, but, uh, you know, the thought that you're just going to be able to pull that apart and say, no, there's no big deal. No, molded as one. Now spend, you know, a year smushing the two together. 10 years, 25, 30, 65 years, right? Indistinguishably one. To separate or take any portion off is to amputate. And that's what the scripture is saying about divorce. That's how violent it is. Now with that, the term, the terminology, we'll get through a few terminologies here. The idea of divorce and amputation, I think we would agree that at times to preserve a life, amputation is necessary, right? 
It's as dramatic, no matter how small it is, right? If they tell us tomorrow, we're going to have to take the end of your your unused hand, let's say, right? If you're right-handed or left-handed, the opposite one, we're going we're gonna to take just the end of your pinky finger off. That's going to be a dramatic decision for you. If they tell you we're going to have to take your whole leg off, you know, if they tell you we're going to take arm and leg off, all your limbs off, these are decisions you don't enter into mildly. This is not something you just say. But I think we can agree that to preserve life, at times it is necessary. Just to give the illustration of necessity. So now within that, by definition, by definition here, there are a couple of things to look at. The first of which is finding no favor. Okay? So the next one being uncleanness. Uncleanness, uh, quite simply in the original language, is to be unclothed. So it has by nature the implication of sexual immorality there are those that want to redefine it as something else but very clearly this passage and jesus comments on this in the new testament tell us that it pertains to sexuality so by definition the one thing that is unarguable Right, we'll we'll look at what is also said uh, in First uh, Corinthians regarding abandonment in just a moment. But we can say that without question, the Scripture is saying that in regard to divorce, that sexual immorality within a marriage does. And let's be clear: not demand, not demand divorce, but it gives allowance for divorce. And I say allowance because that statement where it says that if she finds no favor, right? The Lord is saying that if a man can tolerate, if a woman can tolerate the person, and finding no favor has the idea of, um, in the original language, uh, you, it would rip your eyes away. Um, so, so the sense that you, you cannot even bear to look upon the person. So sexual immorality within the marriage causes a break in the relationship that is such that the offended party cannot even look upon the other person is what's being said. So by definition, we need to get that clear, right? Because our culture has just gotten to the place where we use this like a slot machine, just Divorce, divorce, you know, we're at better than 50% right now. We're near 51%. At times, we've hovered closer to 52% of marriages end in divorce. How tragic is that? You know, that, that this is the case. And second marriages end 70% of the time. Third marriages end in, like I said last week, like about 15 minutes. You know, it's crazy how quickly these things accelerate. In our culture, the Lord wants marriage to be between one man and one woman for the remainder of their life. 
you know, the allowance that he's giving here, not the demand. There are those that teach that. If there's been marital infidelity, then the Lord demands divorce. He does not. He does not. I can tell you that by experience, what I have seen is that when this is allowed to go on, and I do mean allowed, it's very damaging to everyone involved. When when one of the spouses is just like, oh, I don't care. I'm going to do everything I can to just sort of blind myself to that going on. More than anything, who is being damaged is the adulterer. The fact that they're remaining in a relationship and effectively they're abusing the spouse that they're married to and then they are damaging their own soul over and over and over again. It's a very, very serious thing to consider. I pray none of us ever has to contend with this. But here's the scripture giving us some advice. So we understand marital infidelity and can't stand to be with a person requires a certificate of divorce. This is another thing, Old Testament and New Testament, those Christians that want to say, well, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend because, you know, emotionally we're already married. Would it require a certificate of divorce to get rid of her? No, it would not. So the scripture is saying you are not married. You are living in fornication and both the Old Testament, the New Testament, and Jesus Christ say that you are supposed to have a certificate of marriage so that if anything like this was to ever occur, there would have to be a certificate of divorce. You know, the, oh, the state, was it a piece of paper? What's it? No, no, no. Uh, notice how closely the Lord connects these to the vows that are taken, right? They're very close in proximity to one another letting your yes be yes and your no be no before the congregation of the Lord. These aren't man-made things. This is something that the Lord has mandated, saying that it must be done in this order. Uh, part of the reason that he said you got to give a certificate of divorce was that by the time Jesus arrived, they had turned this into, it was like, you know, marriage was like dating is today. They'd literally done this thing where they were saying, you know, if she doesn't find any favor in your eyes, um, well, I hate the way that she makes my breakfast. That's literally where they'd gotten. She just cannot get my eggs right. So all he had to do was write on a piece of paper, I divorce you, put her name and his name on it, give it to her and say three times in front of other witnesses, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Done. That's how cheap they had made the whole process. The Lord is very much drawing us back from that to the idea of the commitment that is here. Now, uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, Jesus said, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery 
because when Jesus arrived, that's how cheap they had made marriage. Literally, you know, in the marketplace, see another attractive woman, talk to her, left with the impression that you could develop a relationship with the new woman, go home, write a bill of divorcement, hand it to your wife in front of people and say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and then go find that other gal you had a conversation with. And within a matter of hours, they literally, in certain cases, would marry the new gal. I mean, it's just it's like online dating. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and this is what he is saying right here of if you're getting divorced like that and you're marrying someone like that, you're make no mistake, you are committing you know, fornication. This is sexual immorality. You're just you know, going through the motions, calling it marriage when what it is is adultery. You're not following the commitments. Paul, 1 Corinthians, I promised that we would talk about abandonment. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, Paul says to the church at Corinth, if the unbeliever departs, so if there's a believer and an unbeliever together, if the unbeliever departs, let him or her depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such a case, but God has called us to peace. If, if the unbelieving spouse has left, you don't have to live as though you're still married to them. You know, if they send the paperwork through the mail, or, you know, they, I guess they have to do it in person, right? You know, it's okay uh, for you as the believer to let that person go. Why? Because God wants you to live in peace. He doesn't want you to be burdened under that relationship. And lastly... Mark chapter 10, verse 12, uh, if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Point being there, that the Lord allows for and the courts allowed for at Jesus' day for women to divorce their husbands. Uh, you know, So the idea for us, you guys, is that the Lord wants our commitment to be lifelong. But there are reasons and cause for us, if it were necessary, if it were necessary to allow for divorcement, uh, you, you got to understand the greater picture, right? The Lord wants us to experience the fulfillment in the marriage. We don't have time for it, but I'll just, you know, give you a little spoiler. The very next section, the Lord talks about when a couple is first married, they're to have arrangements put in place already through their own efforts through friends and family's provision that for the first year they do not work and they do not go to war. If there's a war on, men can't go to war in their first year of marriage. Why? Because the Lord wants the husband to serve the bride so that she will be content. A whole year off. You get married, the honeymoon lasts a year. right? Now, there are many things involved in that, right? The average lifespan of the time was 45. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, um, you know, that one year is going to be especially memorable to the entirety of the marriage. The greater thing that I want to point out, and then we'll close, is this. In that, you hear how much God wants marriage to be fulfilling. If we're in a suffering place of relationship, look, don't go file for divorce what I'm saying to you is 
fall on your face before the Lord and seek his help because he wants that relationship to be fulfilling. He, he wants pleasure in the relationship. Well, you know, we have all these other influences around us in life, even maybe from our own hearts and minds and the families we were raised in. The Lord wants the relationship to be good. He wants it to be fulfilling. You know, even in the idea of the divorce that I described, you know, that, that issue of not finding favor in the eyes. Like, it may become necessary to separate for a period of time and seek the Lord, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that the, the relationship could be restored rather than there be a permanent severing of the relationship. Very, very damaging to everybody involved. Our culture has gotten so used to it that it's commonplace. The Lord provides strength and wants to carry. I have recently was talking with someone and they asked me how long I've been married. I said, married 33 years. And they were stunned by that. This is a very rare thing. I said, oh, make no mistake. <laughs> that's not to my credit. That's, that's the Lord's credit. He has protected. He has, you know, he has preserved. He has nourished my relationship with my wife. You know, he's taught me along the way, and I would say that I have cooperated, but the credit belongs to Jesus Christ, to our King. And I think every successful marriage in this room would have to say the same thing. Amen? The Lord is, is the preservation. So, well, we'll pick up there next week, but understand the Lord's desire for fulfillment and joy uh, in your life. And uh, the way that he wants to accomplish these things is through cooperation with him. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Liberty Council, lc.org. Well worth your time to go look at their ministry and see what the Lord is doing with them and through them. Father, protect us, guide us. Lord, we do ask for favor in regard to the court cases. Lord, uh, the freedom, the liberty we have to worship you, the religious freedoms that are protected by our Constitution. Help us to be men and women that are personally submitted to you, that we would see these things occurring in our lives, Lord, our, our church, our communities, our state, and our nation. Use us as salt and light. Help us to protect and preserve and illuminate. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.